Well, Nancy Pelosi has moved on and taken the cautious sentiment with her. Then we've had some very positive ISM numbers in the United States and James Bullard talking about how the Fed will deliver credible disinflation. And the markets like that kind of talk. Will they like what the Bank of England has to say today? Is it going to give us a 50 basis point hike? If it's not, what's that going to do to the pound? And Aussie trade numbers today as well, which could see the surplus rise further. We'll soon find out. It's Thursday, the 4th of August, 2022. It's the morning call from NAB. Good morning. Well, the US dollar has edged ever so slightly higher this morning, up less than 0.2% on the DXY, but we've seen a 0.6% gain uh, from it on the Japanese yen. It's also up a third of 1% on the Swiss franc. The Aussie dollar has gained 0.4%. It's around 69.5 US cents now. Not much going on with the euro, but the pound ahead of the uh, Bank of England later on is down 0.2%. US stocks have bounced back with a vengeance. The Nasdaq up 2.6%. The S&P closed up 1.8%, up 1%. 1.3% for the Dow. Europe also closed higher, 1.3% for the Eurostox 50. Not massive moves in US bond yields, not on 10 years anyway. They're up just one basis point, but two years up eight basis points. 10 years in Germany are up six basis points as well, with similar moves at the front end of their yield curve. Australian 10 year bonds rose by 10 basis points during yesterday's local trading to 2.75%, and uh, the bond market futures. Virtually unchanged in overnight trading. Big falls in oil, though. WTI down 4% to 90.65, which is where it was, in fact, below where it was when Russia invaded Ukraine. There's a sign of the times. Brent has also fallen 3.7% below $97 a barrel. So equities telling us everything is all right, it seems. Oil saying the opposite if it's due to weakening demand. We're getting mixed signals this morning. Uh, but here's NAB's Ray Atrill in Sydney. Uh, I mean, yesterday... I think, you know, there was some concern about Taiwan and US-China tensions and all that. But, you know, that was yesterday, Ray. Uh, we've had strong earnings since then and, and all that geopolitical stuff clearly forgotten about for now. Well, it seems to be, yes. That uh, I think of the classic case of uh, sell the rumour, buy the fact, right? Certainly, you know, they, uh, you know the, the sell-off that we had in, in risk sentiment um, earlier in the week, I think certainly, you know, realisation or belief that... Uh, the uh, Nancy Pelosi was going to rock up in Taiwan as part of her Asian tour, um, certainly filled markets with a degree of dread. Um, but the response to China, apart from the, the expected rhetoric, has been reasonably restrained so far. It uh, was quite a, quite a lot of mirth when, um, you know, the headline crossed the wires that uh, China was, was was banning the export of sand to Taiwan. I'm thinking, what the... <laughs> and of course, it turns out that sand is the uh, is the primary source ingredient for making silicon, which is, of course, the, um, you know, the main ingredient of chips, which is uh, Taiwan's biggest single industry. But um, again, if you look at Taiwan Semiconductor, for example, their shares were actually up yesterday. So uh, I guess you can source sand from other places. Yeah, you can, like Taiwan. Saudi Arabia, for, and, for um, example. <laughs> there were a few bans on imports of... Uh, <laughs> Of fruit and uh, and and some uh, dried fish, I think as well. Mm. But um, you know, so it didn't affect the uh, sentiment in the local markets, at least. And uh, as you say, markets seem to have quickly have quickly moved on from that to to other. Well, things. it's been helped, of course, by strong services ISM numbers in the US. It was fifty five point three. It was actually expected to fall. Uh, the fifty five point three last time it's expected to go lower, but it's up to fifty six point seven in July, uh, with a good rise in new orders as well. So, v- a very healthy set of numbers. 
Absolutely, and, and probably all the more surprising given we had that um, unexpected weakness in the um, the S and P Global um, ISM, which mm-hmm. is a you know a statistic that has a much shorter track record in the markets. Uh, you know, it seems quite rightly you tend to dismiss that you know in anticipation of the uh, the long standing ISM surveys, and that's exactly what happened. So, uh, as you say, most of the readings are encouraging business activity. Uh, driving the, the rise. That was up to 59.9 from 56.1. Mm. Orders up, as you say. Um, employment um, still below 50, but up a couple of points on, on previously. And, and prices paid coming off a little bit was encouraging, but in absolute terms, still, you know, still very, very high. So, um, um, yeah, so it's delivers- 72.3. So th- tell me about that because, it, I mean, so the rate of gro- what it's telling us, because it's 72.3, so it's still quite a bit over 50. So, but it's falling. So that means the rate of growth is falling, but prices are still rising. Absolutely. That, that is exactly right? it. You've got to yeah. get your first and second yeah. derivatives right, Phil. You're doing very well. But, um, exactly. So it is yeah, that, yes. <laughs> but we'll need to see that number really coming down you know, a lot more significantly before you yeah. start talking about absolute declines in uh, in, in prices. So, um, but anyway, a little... Uh, at least moving in the right direction, at least the rate of increase is slowing, as you say. So, um, yeah, so that, the, the, the ISM not lost on markets. So looking at, uh, at bond markets in particular, particularly the front end, um, you know, no doubt that, that that number has had a, a bit of a cathartic impact in, uh, well, not cathartic, as if you're a bond market uh, short or a bond market bear with uh, further backup in, in yields left by the front end of the curve. Right. So when those prices get below 50, down to 49, then we might be looking at credible Disinflation, uh, which that's got to be the, uh, I think it's been used before, but that, they're, they're the words, that's the expression of the day for me, which came from James, uh, the Fed's James Soft Landing Bullard. Uh, he uh, doesn't think a recession is going to happen. He said that before. He tweeted that the yield curve inversion is a nominal inversion. And uh, since he spoke, and we've had other Fed, Fed speakers too, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, as you say, you know, it's we've seen that move up at the front end of the yield curve. Uh, so, uh, which actually means a further inversion in the yield curve, but it's a nominal inversion, Ray. So we shouldn't worry about it. <laughs> well, perhaps not, but uh, obviously in the past, um, that inversion of the nominal curve has been a reliable indicator of recession. Let's see. But James Bullard, mm. yesterday speaking to the New York Money Marketeers during our time zone, was actually a fascinating. Uh, you know, it was a fascinating discourse, and um, you know, whatever you think of the no- of his notion that we can actually have. You know, not just a soft landing. We can basically get inflation down to two percent with no, with no cost, effectively, no decline in output, no rise in unemployment whatsoever. Right. Sort of initially met with a few guffaws from the audience. Because he's still going to put rates up. I mean, he's still saying like maybe four percent well, by the end of the year, but he's going to, but it's going to have that no was impact. His, that was his whole point. He's saying you, you can't go. Gradualism is not going to get you there, and he compared. You know, the idea of getting rates up into sort of mildly restrictive territory, he still wants rates at three and three quarter to four percent before the end of this year, ideally. And then he he basically laid into Thatcherism, um, saying that uh, the problem, you know, during the the early years of of the Margaret Thatcher administration, remember the Bank of England wasn't independent, it took its instructions from the government, um, was that they took too long, effectively, when they started experimenting with money supply targeting. Um, to get inflation down, and, and we ended up with uh, you know high inflation for longer and, and a deep recession, for example. And so if you, Whole different you know, if, you, if, if you're credible and you have credibility, and obviously well, where's that? Did he say where that was coming from? Did he say where the credibility was coming from? Was he saying that, that, that they've got the, the the Fed's got the credibility now? That, that, well, he's really <laughs> saying he's comparing it, saying <laughs> if you go back to the Volcker era and we had yeah. high inflation, the Fed had no credibility to start with. 
Obviously, Paul Volcker earned his credibility over many, many years. But he's saying, you know, since then, the Fed has established credibility and inflation expectations are key. And uh, and they, for the most part, have been very well contained and still are, for example. And in those circumstances, if, if you move quickly, um, get rates up to neutral or restrictive, uh, he still thinks you can get inflation down at, at say, at zero cost. But um, I'm not sure those views are shared by all of his colleagues. But um, all I would say is you ignore James Bullard at your peril. He has clearly been at the forefront of, uh, you know, of the push to get rates up and get them up quickly. Um, and he's been more right than any other Fed official in so he's got credi- what the Fed should be doing. So he has got credibility. credibility. Yeah, yeah. And, then, uh, and then overnight, we've had Mary Daly from the San Francisco Fed um, her sort of key message um, overnight, and we've had the same from Neil Kashgari from the Minneapolis Fed, is that the markets are ahead of themselves in thinking about rate cuts in 2023. So um, she says the market's ahead of themselves, and then uh, Kashgari has said that um, has said exactly the same thing effectively. So I think this is the new Fed mantra: is it's not so much that you know rates are going to go up a lot more than you think in the short term; it's that um, you're whistling Dixie if you think that uh, we think we're going to be cutting rates as early as sort of, you know, middle of 2023. Mm, wow. Okay. Uh, and oil, tell me about that today. Fallen quite a bit. Uh, and and what's the reason behind this? Because not, not normally we'd say, well, okay, there's, there's weaker demand expectations, but then we're seeing stocks rising. So there's quite a bit of enthusiasm as though we are going to see more demand. And, you know, this, uh, you know, we've just heard that, you know, we're going to have uh, no demand destruction happening. And it can't be OPEC plus because all they've done, they've met, they've agreed to produce more oil, but, you know, like 100,000 barrels a day. I mean, you know, the US is adding a million barrels a day from its reserves at the moment. So it makes very little difference, I would have thought. So why why this move down so much today? Well, a little bit of a head, stra- uh, of a head scratcher, but uh, as you say, because OPEC mm. has agreed, what, 100,000 uh, uh, barrel <laughs> increase in production, which is actually a little bit less, I think, than uh, than some people were expecting. OPEC plus met, uh, met overnight. So I can only put it down to, give to it context, the... context, what is it about 30.3 million barrels a day that OPEC's pumping out at the moment? So it's, yeah, it's a small it's increase. It's a small increase. But, so I can only put it down to the inventory numbers. So the EIA uh, produced their weekly mm. inventory stats, and then they showed a much bigger build in inventories than had been expected. So um, yeah. uh, that does suggest that, um, you know, that demand, there is a, something of a, of a demand shortfall coming through, at, um, whether it's weather-related or whatever, or, um, you know, coming, coming to the end of the driving season. I, uh, I haven't really got my, my head fully around it. And always volatility well, means that sometimes it, does, it doesn't pay to make too much sense of the day-to-day volatility. Being, well, hey, so. how about this? The prices at the pump may have been, got too high and people haven't been buying as much. You know, there's always that possibility, isn't there? But there again, you know, you can push up rates and push up prices without it affecting mm. demand, I heard someone say. So the Bank of England, uh, we're looking at another uh, 50 basis point hike, another central bank doing that. Uh, the question is, will they? Because uh, obviously the UK economy isn't in particularly good shape, so uh, maybe they'll back off from that. But, uh, well, I mean, the 50 is not a shoe-in. The markets are priced about 75% for a 50 basis point move. And if I look at the poll of economists, um, you know, you've got about, um, I think you've got about 30 out of 44 saying they'll go 50. And, um, you know, and the rest saying 25, which includes NAB. And uh, our sort of argument, if you like, against going 50 is that, um, you know, the bank had always said that uh, stepping up the pace or the magnitude of hikes was, was subject to certain conditionality, particularly with respect to, say, acceleration in wages growth or, um, or inflation expectations becoming unanchored. And there is there's scant evidence that, <clears throat> excuse me, either of those things are happening. But, um, but clearly the bank's sort of rhetoric has changed and, and the governor 
um, told markets at the Mansion House speech um, late July that 50 basis points was going to be on the table for today. Mm. So uh, it does seem as though he will be, you know, recommending that. But um, Bank of England governors have a history of being outvoted. Mervyn King was <laughs> on many occasions during his tenure. So, um, so you know, I think we're right. describing it as a line ball call, to be honest. But um, so if it comes in, so if it comes in weaker, if it comes in at 25, for example, or even less, what's what's the market reaction? What changes? Well, I think sterling would take a, a hit. So we're sitting here at what one. 21 and a half in terms of the dollar sterling exchange rate. Um, you know, if yeah. they're only 25, I think we could be heading down to a test of 120. Uh, and if they do deliver 50, um, you know, we should see sterling going up, but maybe not uh, not as much as it will fall on 25, given that it is, it's reasonably well priced. So, uh, but certainly a bit of sterling volatility tonight seems to be assured. Now, uh, Aussie trade numbers laid on today. For June, we saw quite a rise in exports last time, 9.5% month on month. But uh, of course, we've been seeing rises in, in commodity prices. That's changed a little bit now. Uh, so the trade surplus is expected to fall a bit, but still a healthy surplus for Australia. So d- just on that, I mean, t- tell me about, you know, w- what you think that will be today. But does that help control inflation? If you're a country that's got a, you know, a good, strong trade surplus and you can export your uh, your goods and pass on those extra costs, does that have any sort of flow on domestically with imports and home produced goods and services? In other words, can you weather the inflation better than countries that have got a, a strong trade deficit, for example? Or mm. doesn't it make any difference? I'm thinking about that as you're asking me the question and the brain's whirring and I'm not yeah. sure I've got, a, I've got an answer. I've never looked at trade <laughs> in relation to, uh, to inflation. The main thing that we've seen... You well, know, there we are. We'll park we'll that park one. That one it's and we'll the do thought, it, basically. It? The main thing you'd say is that the trade yeah. surplus is providing a, uh, you know, something of an offset to domestic uh, pressures on growth. But remember, these trade figures are, are nominal numbers and from a GDP perspective, at least, we have to deal in volumes rather than values. And the reason we actually think we're going to have another record surplus today, so we're against the market right. consensus, okay. but it's really driven by the uh, further sort of feed-through of prices for coal and LNG rather than increases in volumes, even if iron ore may be a little bit weaker because iron ore prices have come down. So we're really looking for export values to achieve a new record high. But uh, that doesn't actually mean anything directly as far as real uh, GDP is concerned. But anyway, we'll come back to the, um, your inflation theory on another day, please. <laughs> <laughs> that was a curly one to throw at you out of the blue, wasn't it? Sorry about that. Look, we get the uh, the balance of trade for the US and Canada today as well, and German factory orders plus the continuing and initial jobless claims for the, uh, for the, US, uh, for the US ahead of non-farm payrolls on Friday. Normally we'd get the ADP employment report as well, but that's on holiday. Uh, but it's going to be back at the uh, the end of the month, refreshed and more useful perhaps. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you finally, another Kaylee question then. Uh, if, if currencies are, it looks like they're behaving a bit the old-fashioned way today, aren't they? Because we've got more uh, risk sentiment uh, removed. You know, people are a little bit more optimistic. So we've seen the, the yen and the Swiss franc fall uh, and also the Aussie as well has uh, climbed a little bit today. So if that sentiment continues, presumably the Aussie is going to continue to climb as well. Are we going to get over 70 for a while? Yes, it's certainly possible that we could see above 70. If you go back to the whole latter half of July and the rally in Aussie back to uh, briefly above 70, it was very much a risk affair. Um, so if we do see um, equity markets and other measures of risk sentiment improving, then um, who's to say we won't go back above? But our view remains that for the most part, we think Aussie dollar will be ranging uh, below 70 cents rather than above in the weeks and months ahead. And, uh, and elsewhere, you know, the yen of the weakest currency makes sense. Treasury yields are back up, risk sentiment is on. And um, so in that sense, it's all fairly joined up, except for... Um, the Norwegian krona, which has done well with oil prices down 4%. I haven't worked that one out yet, but um, 
I will do shortly. Don't forget, don't forget credible disinflation, though. You know, if that catches on, Ray, then uh, you know the Aussie dollar could uh, be in for a good run. Absolutely. Anyway, leave it there for now. Good to talk. Catch you again next time. Thank you. Well, Luke, thanks, Phil. And uh, this is, of course, a very credible podcast as well because we are telling you it's credible. Therefore, you must believe us. Uh, <laughs> that's it for today. That's the morning call from NAB. I'm Phil Dobby. Uh, back again tomorrow morning. Have a great day. See you then.